Welcome to a special edition of Breaking Badness. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Liz, a security analyst for the U.S. government. Co-hosts Emily Hacker and Sean McNee sat down with Liz to cover her career path, challenges in InfoSec, advice for analysts, and so much more. This bonus episode of Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special episode of Breaking Badness, recorded on August 16th, 2019. With us today is Liz, a security analyst for the U.S. government with over four years of experience. Today, we are hoping to pick her brain on her career path in the security space, trends on info security industry, and how she stays abreast of the ever-evolving threat landscape. We're also joined today with our security researcher, Emily Hacker, and I'm your special host, Sean McNee because Kelsey has other things to do with her time today. Kelsey is too good for us now. (laughs) And we want to welcome Liz. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. Yay. This is going to be so much fun. It's going to be so good. All right. So should we just jump right in? Let's let's talk about your job, Liz. Let's let's talk about getting into the info security industry. Okay. All right. So um, thank you for being here, Liz. Um, First off, I want to talk about how did you get into um, security? So um, I probably came to cybersecurity through the back door, so to speak. Um, I started out with the U.S. government in 2006 after finishing grad school. And my background is in political science. And then I have a master's degree in public policy with a specialization in international security. So uh, 2006, the government is going crazy hiring um, analysts to do counterterrorism work, and that's how I got hired in. And I did that job for about nine years. And after nine years, uh, it's a job that really wears you down. And I realized that I needed to do something differently for my own mental health, for just my personal interests, um, that I just needed something new and I wanted to start exploring different things. And then for a year, I uh, was self-taught in data science and did some data analysis work uh, also for the government. And about a year into that, I realized that this is a really interesting field. There's a lot of opportunities, both within the government and the private sector. But some of the questions that I was being asked were not as particularly interesting as I wanted to be, especially if I was looking for maybe at that point, I was looking to think about my path outside of government and what that would look like. And in the data science world, a lot of the questions that different companies were asking to me just weren't as interesting. Um, I wasn't as interested in how do I make more money for X company using math. Um, I realized that there are a number of things that about my counterterrorism job that really excited me and got me going every day. And one of those was just solving puzzles. I like puzzles. I like having incomplete information and taking that and putting that together and making a full picture out of it and trying to figure out and tell people, this is what we think is going on. This is our best guess. Um, I also like learning new things constantly. And within the counterterrorism space, I'd probably kind of lost that path towards learning new things on a regular basis, but was kind of thinking, okay, where's a field that I can constantly be learning new things? It's always going to be changing and always evolving. And the other thing too is I really actually did like the technical side of data science. And I 
had somewhat of a background in computers. I worked a help desk for a while during college, and I also ran that help desk after graduating. So I had a little bit of technical understanding and technical knowledge, and it was something that I always enjoyed. So when I thought about kind of bringing all those things together, and once again, kind of keeping in mind that I might not always want to be in government, I was like, wait a minute, I can chase bad guys doing cybersecurity. And that is something that is a job both inside government, outside government, I'd have a lot of options. And once again, I wouldn't also just be in the DC area, there's kind of jobs for that all over. So I decided to take a chance on a job that opened that I saw in um, San Francisco, uh, also government related. And uh, it was a cybersecurity job and took that on for three years and really liked it. And then a uh, year after that, decided to go back to DC and take on a job that would be uh, more hands-on technical in the cyber world. Wow, that is so cool. I love that you have kind of a unique path to getting in this industry. Um, with some of those um, more unique jobs that you've had in the past, do you think there's any particular skills from those jobs that have actually helped you a lot in your current job? I think some of the big skills that actually translate no matter what field you're doing analysis in, critical thinking. You always have to be able to have those critical thinking skills and putting basically pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. Um, the other one is writing. Um, if you can write, you open up a lot of different doors for yourself. And last but not least, general communication skills. If you can take something that is extremely technical and give that to a non-technical audience, and in my job in particular, that's actually one of the biggest things we do is we take cybersecurity events and we translate that for an extremely non-technical audience who also wants that placed in a very political or international security type context. And that's kind of, it takes all of my different backgrounds and puts it together. So then your, your training political science, your master's degree really help you kind of get that extra context. Yeah. For a lot of the threats that we're looking at, um, there are going to be nation state actors involved. And so putting that in a political context, in a geopolitical context, um, that our different policymakers can understand um, that political science training really comes in handy. Very cool. Um, so to the extent that you can talk about it, um, I know you're talking about translating very technical um, events for a non-technical audience and stuff, but what would you say a typical day looks like in your current role? Well, one of the things I really like about my current job is that there is not a typical day. Love that. And depending on the day, so we have a lot of different types of data we look at, much like anyone in security would look at. We have PCAP and network data. We have server logs and servers. We have endpoints. Um, and depending on the day, depending on the assignment, I could be looking at any of those and trying to basically find the raw data to help determine what type of event we're looking at. Um, I could be, usually actually what happens is I'm in meetings all day right now. I'm actually a team lead for um, a technical team. And so I'm in a lot of meetings uh, basically trying to figure out what tasks we need to be fulfilling, trying to figure out who our best people are to put on each of those. And then um, also trying to make sure we're making all the deadlines. And so I do my own work for about two hours a day once everyone's <laughs> gone home. Mm. Um, but... You know, it, I could be looking at data. I could be writing. I could be giving briefings. It basically just depends on the day. And I basically like that when I come into work, I generally know what I plan to do. 
And that might not always survive the first 10 minutes. Yeah, for sure. So it's not like you can have a Taco Tuesdays or PCAP Thursdays or... No. No. Oh. All right. So just jumping right back into it. Um, that's interesting about your day. I kind of understand the meeting thing. And I also love insecurity how um, sometimes it can be stressful, but things just also can just pop up and kind of change your day. Um which I think is pretty common among security professionals, and people understand that. But there, are there any other preconceived notions about the security career path that maybe you wish you could squash? I think my biggest one, and once again, I think it totally goes back to my own personal background. One of the biggest things I wish I could squash is that you need to have an, a highly technical background, and that is the only way to get into security. I think there are a lot of different backgrounds that add into the security context. And if you have one person who is extremely technically proficient, they can script anything you want on the fly and it's going to be perfect the first time they try it, but they might not know what questions they should be asking of the data. They might not know then what to how to take that output and apply the results to something. Um, you can, I don't want to say that the technical side isn't important. I think you actually have to have a passion for it. And if you don't have that background, you have to be really committed to learning it. It is a very steep learning curve. But I think kind of the idea that computer science is kind of the only background. And within that, now that there are programs in cybersecurity, that you must have gone through a cybersecurity program. Um, that's kind of the thing that I wish I could squash. Uh, I agree. I wish I could shout that from the rooftops. I'm glad to hear you say that because it um, is one I wish I could squash as well. So that being said, um, squashing notions left and right, what is something that you really enjoy about working in this industry now? I know you've moved here from other industries. So is there something unique about the security in particular that you really enjoy? I think the thing that's this is going to sound crazy to anyone else who works in cybersecurity. But you have to remember I'm coming from a counterterrorism context. I like that if I mess up, I'm. it's not a life and death thing for the most part. Yes, there are attacks that can have real world, real, real world effects. <laughs> um, but one of the things that is nice about that is that most of the attacks on any network are usually ongoing for months to years before anyone finds out about them. Data gets lost. It's horrible for the people who lose data or for the people whose data gets locked down. And there's definitely a high monetary cost and cost in people's lives for those who have to do identity theft protection and things like that. But I do appreciate the fact that for the most part, if I make the wrong call, if we make the wrong judgment, there's just a lot less stress knowing that no one's life is on the line. That's got to be quite the shift from from counterterrorism to moving to this? Is it it's like a weight lifted off your shoulders or do you feel like it's... I do. I think what I actually really enjoy about this at the same time is it's still a really important topic. It's not mm -hmm. that it's inconsequential. Um, look at the newspaper, you know, every day for the past two years. There's a lot of consequences. But I think that I get to feel like I'm doing something important, something that matters, something that is actually hopefully making people's lives better and easier, even if they don't fully understand the ramifications of what we're doing. Um, I get to feel like I am fulfilled from the point of, you know, using my brain every day, 
critical thinking skills are engaged. You know, it's a topic that's really engaging to me. Um, and yet at the same time, there is a, an amount of relief mm-hmm. that I can go home at the end of the day and sleep. Sleep is good. Yes. Usually I... no one calls me at four in the morning anymore. Yeah, I don't want to get four AM'd either. That's not a that's not a thing that I would really enjoy. Um but I know some people do get those crazy calls because there are there are a lot of challenges that just happen in cybersecurity because it is a worldwide thing, right? So then what are what are some of those challenges that you think the community faces or will face over the the next uh, few years? And you know how do you think that we should be you know overcoming them? I think one of the things that was really interesting to me when you know we started talking about the type of questions you guys were going to ask it that actually caused me to sit down and think for a while. And this was one of them uh, that, you know, and segueing into like what type of jobs do we think might be available in the future that people should really be thinking about. And to me, those two things really tie together. And I actually had to sit down and think about this for quite a while because I'm like, well, I don't know, man, like there's a lot of things going on. But one of the things that I kept thinking about and also the timing of it um, with, you know, different things that people are now releasing into the news is people have so many smart devices in their homes these days. And I'm thinking about like my parents between their iPad and their computer and their phones. We already have like a security nightmare going on (laughs) that usually involves in, you know, 8 p.m. phone calls to me Mm -hmm. as opposed to 4 a.m. ones. Now, what if we added a smart refrigerator Mm -hmm. and a smart TV and a smart speaker and a smart toaster and they wouldn't know that passwords are basically hard-coded into some of these things they wouldn't know that they would need some sort of firewall product to kind of keep people from coming into their home network i could see a situation where you know and this is not just my parents i think the average user doesn't know these things that, you know, you actually need to go in and change the password on your baby monitor unless you want people potentially like listening into and watching your children. Mm-hmm. Like there is there are issues here. And and I think like something that I see in the future is education for some consumers, I think, only will go so far because I think we see that already in enterprise contexts. Um, you know, you can give your users as much information you want about spear phishing campaigns or how to identify different potential attack vectors, but it only goes so far because at the end of the day, sometimes you just don't have the time or mental energy to go around every six months and change passwords for every smart device you have in your home, especially if every electronic device you have in your home is a smart device. Mm-hmm. And also then changing your router passwords. And then how are you going to keep these all track of them all? So you just make them all the same password. So are, are these smart devices making us dumb? They're making me dumb. <laughs> I can't speak to anyone else. Um, but one of the things that occurred to me is like, what if we had like a home security mechanic? The same way that I have to take my car, at least in the state where I live, I have to take my car every year and get a a safety checkup. And if my backlight is out or if I don't know what other things they actually check for because they keep dinging me on my brake lights. (laughs) But, Mm. you know, whatever kind of small thing is wrong, every six months someone does an update or every six months, you know, like you would go get an oil change. 
I don't know if that would ever come to pass, but it's just something I thought about. Like, what if we just have like someone like what if that was a job? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think that would be like a serious improvement for the industry. I think that's something that from I've actually personally never thought about. And I, I don't know why, because it makes so much sense. And I think that it would um, take a very common problem we have right now and get rid of it um, or not get rid of it necessarily, but it would be at least a way for people to mitigate it. Um, but that being said, I don't like being all doom and gloom. Um, is there anything that you think we've already improved over the last few years in the security industry? I think that's another question where it's just really hard for me to say because, once again, I haven't been in the industry for that long. But I do think one of the things that is continually impressive to me is uh, the work that security researchers and threat researchers are doing that kind of point out flaws and vulnerabilities before they're ever something that you see in the wild. They're basically limiting the attack space. And that's something that I've always thought is really cool um, in terms of, wait, that's a job you can have. It's also something that I don't think I personally could do, but it's, I just have a really high level of respect for. So you mean like the responsible disclosures? Yes. And you know, bug, bug bounties and people paying a lot of money and then fixing it, pushing out the patches. Exactly. Yeah, that whole cycle. Yeah, because by, I mean, basically, you're basically like, this could be a problem down the road. Someone could build an exploit for this if they find it. Mm-hmm. And the more popular the application that they find something in, the more people that are actually using that application, the more significant that kind of find is. Yeah, so so given our talk about bug bounties and everything that's been happening kind of, you know, private sector-ish, and I know you are, you know, government sector-ish, I mean, do you think that in general government and private sectors collaborate enough or not enough or too much in, in the security space? When you look at a topic like this that is just so broad and there's kind of avenues for everyone and there are concerns both within the government sector and the private sector, and to a certain level, you look at cybersecurity as a public good that everyone should be able to benefit regardless of how much money that they can pay towards the problem, you know, there's definitely roles for both. And so it's really hard for me to say in that space that there's ever such a thing as too much collaboration. But I definitely realize that there are challenges to collaboration in that space. And I think that's actually something we need to look a little bit more at from both sides, maybe. From a government side, I think we are so large. The the U.S. government is just such a large entity. And you might actually think as a private company, you're interfacing with the government if you're interfacing in one part of the government. But just because you are interfacing with one part of the government doesn't mean that information is actually being shared across all sectors of the government, um, especially if you are not specifically stating that you want it shared across the U.S. government. Um, The other thing, too, is sometimes the U.S. government and private companies have different motivations, Um, whether that be a reputational motivation for a private company who's been attacked and they don't want to necessarily disclose that either because they're worried about potential litigation from the government or because they're worried about that getting out to their customers and shareholders, um, whether that is because, you know, that is actually how a business makes their money is through that proprietary information. You know, there's a lot of different reasons that people don't necessarily want to come to the government and talk. Um, But I think overall, you know, I think it's kind of on both the government and private sector to the extent possible to kind of 
try to be looking for ways to overcome those types of challenges because I do think that kind of combining the knowledge on both sides is really the best way to go against some of these bigger problems. Yeah, a way to, to keep the internet together, right? We gotta, we're in this fight together against these, these crazy people. These crazy people. <laughs> yeah, bad, bad actors. Bad actors. Yeah, no good. Well, so I wanna shift gears here a little bit and I want to move into talking about uh, career paths and kind of growth in the cybersecurity industry. So I'm, I'm also relatively new to cybersecurity and I've been trying to get more formal training. I've done some SANS courses, but SANS is awesome. I love you, SANS, it is fantastic. <laughs> it is uh, relatively expensive. Now the quality is worth it if you can afford it, but uh, you know, do you have any recommendations on, on you know, yes, SANS, but potentially other more accessible training opportunities for new or junior security professionals? So I've been lucky because work has basically, all, for the most part, always paid for my training. And oh wow, including those expensive type classes. Um, however, I will say two things. I think as someone who is just fresh, you have no background, you're coming in and you're trying to explore whether this is something you'd even want to try to go into. Um, I think in that case, there's actually a lot that you can find online for that's a lot more cost effective. Um, and it's basically the same way that I ended up learning data science is you go to some of the online university type providers like Coursera, Udemy, edX and go through and you actually look their number that offer cybersecurity specializations and some of them offer them at a flat rate per course that's you know a hundred a hundred or a couple hundred dollars compared to a couple thousand um, and or some of them offer subscription fees where the cost depends on how long you take to complete a course or set of courses and I think for someone who is very new, who has no background experience and is trying to figure out if they want to put forward that sort of time commitment and financial cost, that's a good first step. I think also as programs develop looking into community colleges and programs that are kind of offered locally, um, once again, as kind of a first and intro step. I think once you've kind of gotten some of that background, um, and I've noticed this myself, as I've gotten further into more technical parts of training, at this point I am now on some topics, I could actually go out and buy a book and start teaching myself some of this because I now have sufficient background. And that self-study way of doing it is a lot more cost-effective, um, but you just have to be a lot more self-disciplined, mm -hmm. which I admit I am not always. Well, so what about uh, some of the non-technical side of things? Would you recommend people take a course in political science or history, geopolitics, or something to get you know the broader context? Or do you think the technical side is, is a better side? I think the job requirements that I have seen, at least for most jobs, are going to have some level of technical requirement. And so like the things that I would actually focus most on are making sure you have some sort of network forensic skills. You have some point of reference for um, host forensics, computer forensics. Um, I make sure that you um, have at least a vague understanding of malware reverse engineering because I think that's the big three that you always get asked about in any interview. Do you, what tools do you know? What techniques do you know? What have you done? What can you tell us about in these areas? I think with the political science side or even like a criminal justice side, because sometimes you're actually, if you're looking at crimeware, if you're looking at ransomware, 
e-crime. It's a similar related field that if you have that political science background, it's really easy to pick up the other one. Um, so either might be helpful, but it kind of depends on where you see yourself in the industry and what you see yourself focusing on. Um, if you want to go the APT route and have identified a position where you know, that's what you're going to be focusing on most of the time, then yes, get yourself a, some political science background, understand who the big threat actors are and like the wor- role that they play in the geopolitical world. Yeah, and that's a, a good point that there's a lot of different um, careers within security. Some of them require geopolitics and some of them don't. Um, some of them may be more technical. And we've already kind of discussed how getting into the industry there's a lot of different paths to take there. In fact, all three of us on this podcast right now have different backgrounds, and yet here we all are working in the industry. So, But once you get into the industry, once you're um, working in security, do you think there is such a thing as a typical path to career growth? And if so, what does that look like? Or if not, why not? Um, if there is one, I would like someone to please send me that memo because <laughs> I could use it. I think one of the things that I have noticed in general, and this actually is in any job that you take, I think after you've been in a position for three or four years, you need to, and even before three to four years, you need to be thinking about what is the next thing that you would want to do. And I admit it, I have actually, my career path has not been one of climbing up any particular ladder. I have really approached my career from what experiences do I want to have and what cool things do I want to do. Um, And had I approached it from that ladder perspective, I'd probably be making a lot more money but I'd probably be a lot less happy. So I think that's one of the things that, A, you have to figure out what motivates you and how do you want to manage your career. And then find the next opportunity that looks exciting to you where you might be learning something new and figure out what you need to do to get there. Um, I think also as you kind of move from the more junior ranks to the more senior ranks, another thing that you have to figure out with every move you make is, do you want to keep being an individual contributor or do you want to eventually move into a management type position? And then what additional skills or different skills do you need to do that? Um, Especially if you want to move from an individual contributor into management, a lot of people don't stop to think that those are really two very different types of roles and the things that might make you an awesome individual contributor might make you an awful manager. I cannot reverse engineer you like this malware. <laughs> exactly. And but they keep trying. Mm, I'm gonna try to hack the team. <laughs> hack the team. Hack the team. Um, no, that's a great point. That's really good advice um, about keeping your next job on the horizon, even when you're only a couple of years into the current job. I think that's probably um, a way for people to be the most happy is always looking for that next step, even if it's not necessarily a traditionally upward movement. Um, but speaking of that, what what is the next hot job you think that will exist in security that may not currently exist or may be um, very new if it does? Um, and are there certain areas that prospective security professionals might want to start focusing on in order to prepare themselves for that role? Cybersecurity's next hot jobs. And I go back to the one that we kind of already discussed before, which is like this idea of like the automotive repair specialist of the cyber world who basically focuses on home network environments and Internet of Things connections because I, A, honestly, I don't know what else to think of because I just don't know. What about a rainmaker, like cybersecurity cloud specialist? Ooh. I, I, I thought the idea of Rainmaker sounded cool. Rainmaker? I was going to say, like, someone's job title can be, like, 
Rain Man. Emily Hacker. Rain Man. <laughs> I keep hearing that the cloud is a thing. Well, they're they're in the sky all the time. All the time. Especially here in Seattle. Yes. Just kidding. Yesterday was a really beautiful day. I haven't like emerged from my hole yet today, but yesterday was very nice. Yeah, but usually the clouds, they are around us. There are clouds. Clouds. Yeah, and they're public clouds because anybody can see them. Which is different than private clouds. Yes. So speaking of clouds, are there any emerging technologies or techniques that you are particularly excited about, whether or not they exist in the public or private cloud, um, or any other cloud metaphor that Sean may attempt to make between here and the end of this interview? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, anything, and I've actually, I've seen this tossed around since the day I entered the security field, but anything that you can do at scale to me is always of interest. Um, any sort of big data application to security. And the reason I say that is when you're at the government scale, you are just dealing with the scale of data that a lot of times your individual tools are not prepared to handle, and you have to get very creative in your solutions really fast, especially when you're dealing with government budgets as well. Um, so that to me is just one area that has always been of interest to me. But I'm always on the lookout for something that is going to be cost effective and yet um, kind of work with our needs and the scale of data that we're dealing with. Mm, so big big data in the cloud, do you need like some fog lights to see through that? Sorry. I, I Sad trombone, can we pull that reference out again? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Uh... Keep them coming. Um, rain, cloud, and fog references all welcome on Breaking yes. Badness. Sean, I think you've been living in for Seattle for too long. No, my, my eyes are misting over. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even know how to transition from that because I need you to come up with another pun that helps me transition to this next question. Sean, come on. Now you're on the spot. I, I'm on the spot. They, just, they, just, they dribble out. Oh, they don't Lord. Just, oh, All right. <laughs> it's, it's not like this big flow that just kind of spews forth. Waterfalls. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The waterfall analogy, like software. No, this is more of an agile, like one drip at a time sort of work. Um, yeah. So I'm going to bring us back on track here now. Um, talking about moving on to your, you know, the next, always looking for the next opportunity or the next place you want to be, or even for people that are coming into the industry, um, sometimes it can feel a little bit difficult to kind of justify your existence or like your your job um, space. And so it might be easier, I feel like, for some other industries to say, like, like here's an example. I've done these I'm trying to think of an industry where like that would be super useful. So like, for example, I was in journalism. It would be really easy for me to send a portfolio and say, here's 25 articles I've written. Um, hire me for your newspaper. But in security, it's a little bit different, especially if you work in the government. Um, so is there any way that you can think that's a common metric that security analysts might um, be aware of that can help them validate their value and open career opportunities? So this is another one that I had a really hard time answering because, once again, I've just lived in such a narrow little world for most of my professional career. And I've been lucky in that everyone, every job that I've tried to move to, I could at least share something about mm -hmm. my work. 
Um, I do think what is important is even if you can't share directly what your work is, being able to communicate what skills you're bringing and what value added you're bringing to any corporation or organization that you're trying to work for and how what you've done in the past will translate to what their needs are. Um, and I, I don't really like bean counting and metrics as defined by, you know, I found X number of bugs or I wrote X number of analytic products. Um, I think one of the things that I was taught really early on in my career is think about your value and impact. Um, and I know that it's interesting, you know, as you're doing job interviews and people are coming through and, you know, they're trying to tell you about the number of things or type of things they've done. And every time I have someone who's telling me, you know, I we did X number of whatevers, which created X number of revenue, it's like focus on that impact, focus on the impact statement as opposed to, you know, bean counting. And I think that's where you kind of get the bang for your buck, so to speak. You say that's a, is that a big challenge kind of sticking with, you know, focus and impact or people trying to do the bean counting? I, it probably really depends on your organization and where you live, uh, so to speak. But I actually think one of the things that my organization, my particular organization has done well um, has always been focusing more on impact than bean counting. But I've definitely worked in other parts of the government where bean counting is very much its own exercise. Well, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually more curious about uh, some of the larger challenges. I guess bean counting is one kind of challenge, but I'm sure there's other more greater challenges, right? Like, what do you think is is like probably one of the greatest challenges that you're facing now as a, as a security professional? I think one of the biggest challenges uh, for me is there is just, once again, I think maybe this might be a very personal challenge, not sure, but as someone who's kind of newer in the field, I feel like there is just always so much that you're trying to learn all at once, and you are constantly trying to drink from that fire hose. Fire hose. Oh, here we go with the metaphors again. <laughs> and take it, take all of that in and trying to process it all. And I think for me as well, as someone who likes to be really good at nitty-gritty details, having to step back and accept, I am not actually going to be good at all of this. It is impossible. I have a lot of technically proficient colleagues who have been doing this for 20 years, but even then they specialize. You know, my guy who's been doing... Uh, host-based forensics for 20 years and who has testified in court multiple times about things that they've found, you know, he's not necessarily going to be the best guy um, to put on network traffic issues um, or malware reverse engineering. Um, but if you want something done host-based forensics-wise, he's the guy. And accepting that you're not going to be great at everything and you're, there's never going to be a level where I am probably comfortable that I've even learned enough. And that's okay because I think with very rare exceptions, pretty much everyone in the room is going to be facing a similar challenge. Yeah, so that's a, an interesting challenge that definitely I think everyone in the industry can relate to. But kind of something that might be a little more unique to us is already unique on this podcast is that um, 
we're both in the security industry and we're both women. And I think that's kind of um, a rare occurrence in security. And so I think it's just numbers-wise, it is a fact that there is a gender imbalance in the industry. There are very few of us. Um, so what are your thoughts on that gender imbalance? Have you personally felt like there's been any bias against you because of your gender? And if so, how did you deal with it? So first, a positive bias story is anytime you show up at a cybersecurity conference, you are never going to wait in line for the bathroom. I was just going to say that last week was at DEF CON. It was like the bathrooms were empty. I had the whole place to myself. It was great. I one time at a conference ended up with a very, very small line for the bathroom and we were all high-fiving each other <laughs> because we actually had to wait. We were so excited that there were enough women that we had to wait to use the restroom. It's, it's a real thing. We have to take the joys where we can get them. I was going to say, well, and it's even actually listening to your podcast every week to have two female voices on a security podcast is huge. And that's not to say that I don't listen to other podcasts that don't have women, but it's just it's an, it became more noticeable that there were no female voices and there were no – it does change the dynamic. It changes the context. It changes the types of jokes you use. It changes – and it, there are small things you don't think about, but that come across, especially as a female in security who is trying to listen to your podcast. I'm like, yeah, that joke just isn't flying with me, dude. Um, so I think that's – but yes, start with the positive. So yay bathrooms yay. that we can get into easily. Um, I think there are a lot of downsides, though. And this, is this has actually been fascinating to me. So I have a background in international security, which is not necessarily always a female-dominated sphere. You know, I've done a lot of work um, with military and whatnot. And that, you know, once again, traditionally male-dominated fields, but never have I felt the gender dynamic actually as much as going into cybersecurity. And I honestly, I am really curious what it is about cybersecurity that brings that out. Um, and this is actually a conversation I've had with other women who have backgrounds more similar to mine who have gone into cybersecurity since. And we constantly, you know, are kind of having this side chat of, we don't understand what it is about this field, but we have not experienced some of the things we're experiencing, you know, now or some some of our colleagues are experiencing that we're hearing about, it's just like, this, did this happen where we were before? Because we don't get the sense that it was at least happening as much. And so I think for me personally, I've actually been kind of lucky. I have not had any horribly bad experiences where I ever thought I was either experiencing, you know, extremely direct harassment, you know, in the kind of very traditional kind of sexual harassment scale. And I have been also lucky as in terms of bias. You know, I haven't, once again, experienced that much of it myself, but you see it. You definitely see it. And it's not always in the big things. It's in small things. It's why is the party planning committee mostly female? <laughs> And why, you know, if there's a going away party, does it always seem to be the females that are kind of doing that work? Um, why is it that sometimes you'll see, you know, people who might be a little bit more inexperienced but male and getting what appear to be kind of prime assignments? Um, you know, why is it that the guys are always going to coffee together and not necessarily inviting their junior female colleagues? It's things like that. And... To the extent that a lot of your projects kind of grow out of your personal relationships and a lot of your collaboration grows out of that, if you're not actively including 
women in your sphere, then they're going to be left out. And that's both from a career and growth perspective, but also just from an interesting work perspective. And it means that there is an opinion there and a point of view that you might not actually be considering. Like if you consider, you know, I think less of in a security context, but in like app development context, if you leave out 50% of your market, 50% plus, and you're developing products, you know, the one that comes to mind is health trackers. Health trackers that were doing all sorts of health tracking and not realizing that there might be other things that a female customer might, might want to track, especially one that wants to have kids or something. Mm -hmm. And or just that even women's vital statistics and signs might be different than men's, just, you know, things like that. And so I think, you know, from a security context, especially if you're thinking about usability or design or even just a different set of eyes who's going to bring a different worldview to a problem, you know, being as inclusive as possible is actually going to make you stronger analysts in the long run. Yeah, that's all a really good point. Um, definitely bias is something that I think a lot of us face, even if it's more implicitly, but hopefully it's something that more people are um, becoming aware to nowadays um, and it'll be, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think there are definitely some habits that people can get into in order to help really make that change and make that shift in the organization. I think some of the things that for me, and once again, it depends on what you're dealing with in your own organization and how your own organization is set up. Larger organizations, you're going to have more HR involvement. You're going to have more management training on inclusivity and implicit bias. Um, and also in those larger organizations, and especially in government, you have zero tolerance policies, where if anything is actually happening by regulation and policy, and in some cases, law management actually has to get involved and investigate. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things to think about, too, is what sort of structure are you working in? If you're working in one of those larger structures, then what are your avenues to help deal with it? Uh, some of the things that we do um, in government are actually inclusivity groups and campaigns. Um, and once again, we're really large. And also, we also recognize, especially in the cyber field, we're not the most inclusive group either. You know, I can count the number of females on, on my specific team, you know, working on kind of the technical side of things on one hand, um, the same with non-binary people, the same with people of color. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things, how do we make this environment that someone who is just not your, for lack of a better word, your stereotypical cis, straight, white guy, you know, from middle class, background um, or, you know, middle or upper class, especially in some of these fields, like how do you make this a welcoming environment for people of totally different backgrounds? Um, also looking at, um, you know, if you don't have those kind of official structures, then, you know, thinking about, well, who can you find in your office who's going to be your ally? Maybe it's not a direct manager or supervisor. Maybe they're, you know, not the best person to go to. But is there management in your office who is actually going to be a champion and advocate for inclusivity? Um, do you have coworkers who, once again, they might not, even better if they are not kind of of a minority background in this space, because if they're actually on your side and want to help, you know, be an advocate and be inclusive and can demonstrate that, especially to their younger colleagues, 
then you're going to create a different sort of space, a more welcoming space. Um, and last but not least, like take a serious look at your hiring practices um, and how you decide who you let in the door. Um, you know, people keep going back to, well, the pipeline's just not there. The pipeline's just not there. The pipeline exists. You're just going to have to compete really good for it, you know, really well for it. And look at the way that you screen resumes. Look at, you know, are you looking for certain universities or certain universities or educational backgrounds that other people in your office have? Well, maybe that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, you know, how much does, depending on how much a specific individual or team has impact on the hiring process, looking at that to consider, well, what are the biases of that group of people who are kind of doing the screening and, you know, interviewing and developing the questions? What sort of kind of bias are they bringing to the process? And those are one of the other things to really think about. Um, because if you want to increase your diversity, you, you have to change your hiring in such a way that it really is bringing those different perspectives into play and allowing people of different backgrounds to show their strengths. That's an excellent point and really good advice there. And I especially resonated with what, how you were talking about finding someone in your management or even outside of your management chain as kind of an inclusivity um, advocate. And I think in the same kind of token um for things like for everyone, but especially people who are minorities in this industry, it can be helpful to find a mentor um, because, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes this implicit bias can keep um, people like us down where, you know, if you're not invited to the project, then it's hard for you to move up. So finding a mentor might be a way to have more of that one-on-one um, -on -one learning or also just someone dragging you into the project so that you get to be involved. Um, that being said, do you have any recommendations or suggestions for connecting with industry mentors, whether, you know, they're in your management chain or not? Well, I think also it's important to, like, look across your coworkers as well. Different people, even if they're basically your peers or colleagues, they have different experiences. They come to the table with different backgrounds, and they can teach you a lot. And actually, one of the things that I would encourage, particularly and also specifically, is if there is someone on your team and you guys are, are working on a project or, you know, you're assigned a project, find someone else to work with who has a totally different background than yours. Not only are they going to bring a different view to the project you're working on and probably give you ideas that you never would have thought of, you're also going to learn a lot in that process just by working with them. Um, and for me, that especially in the past few years, has just been invaluable. All the different sorts of backgrounds and perspectives that my different technical team members have and being able to, they've just been great allowing me to like basically grill them um, every time we were working on something. Wait, what's that? How did you find that? What tool did you use? Like, what technique did you use? Wait, what does that actually mean even? Um, you know, when they're giving you results and you're trying to like put that into a context, you're like, wait, what, what? English. Uh, and so that's one way. I think actually another way that I kind of stumbled onto accidentally was I started actually using more of my social network um, to find potential mentors. Um, I know some people, you know, will do kind of cold pitches on LinkedIn to people that they respect in the field or going to conferences, volunteering at conferences and trying to find people that way. Also, if you're taking the big classes, um, the instructors there 
usually are really stoked to help new people out. They actually enjoy kind of connecting with newer people who want to be involved in the space. Um, but for me, actually, one of the things that I did was I reached out to people who I know who were doing security or were adjacent to security. And I asked them if they had any connections um, that they might be able to point me towards. And some of the best mentors and just some of the best people I have found have actually been through that way. Using the networking. That's good. It, it does not come naturally to me, but I made it work. <laughs> so so what about like social media sort of stuff, right? So I know you, you talked about LinkedIn, but what about like Twitter? Okay, that, that was an eye roll in case anybody uh, listening didn't actually see anything. There, there was an eye roll there. That's, that's okay. Do, do you have any like favorite Twitter accounts that you follow in the security space? So I know that security Twitter is a thing. But I'm an old lady. <laughs> and so I have a Twitter account that I do not use. Um, so, th yeah, there are not really any Twitter accounts that I follow or whatnot. I think that's a, actually it's another government thing mm. where we are just not as – we have a bunch of different data sources that we draw on. So we are not as active in some of those particular, like, forums. I can talk a lot more about podcasts and blogs, though. Do you have other – other podcasts that would be second to this one? <laughs> well, always second. So one of the things that when I first started um, my analytic job, um, I took a creativity and analysis class. And it is a class that was open to all analysts regardless of what their field that they were covering. So someone from si doing cybersecurity at the time could have easily taken the class. And one of the things that they taught us that I always thought was interesting is if you want to be particularly creative in your job and coming up with novel solutions and ways to approach problems, listen to things that aren't in your field. Um, listen to things that are tangentially related to your field that might have something to do with it. Something's going to spark that idea in you that you're like, wait a minute, what if I took that approach to the problem I'm having? And so I try to listen to multidisciplinary podcasts in some ways. So um, some of my favorites, basically anything NPR makes, mm -hmm. I will listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that's Reply All, which is a little bit more technology-faced, or Radiolab, which kind of has social and a technology focus. Um, I'm huge on politics so and data, so 538 uh, Politics Podcast is a weekly listen to me, for me. Um, you know, in terms of security-type things, um, and both blogs and podcasts, you know, Cisco Talos um, and um, the Microsoft security blog. Um, also looking at, um, you know, for the broader policy context, um, the Lawfare blog and oh, what is it called? Real security. I have to look this up. Basically, the Lawfare, the Lawfare blog does a huge security focused blog, sub blog as well. Um, so if that's kind of more of your speed and background just bringing all of that together. Well, what about um, about some other uh, fun or crazy things that have, that have happened in, in a positive light, right? So any mem uh, memorable experiences that you've had while, while working in cybersecurity? So one of the hazards of my job is I can't talk too much about all the fun that we've had, but I promise there has been some. So that means you have just done redacted, 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 period. So, so here's what I can tell you. Ooh. 
it's actually fun to see something that you've been involved in uh, end up on the front page of, page mm. of the newspaper sometimes. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're, you know, maybe a situation where there is a bad guy who actually got arrested and uh, was convicted and actually put in jail, which does not happen in the cyber world Never. all that often. There might have been a time when that happened, and that was <laughs> extremely exciting. If only it actually happened. It just might have happened. Intriguing. Intriguing. Yes. In the, the cyber world where no one goes to jail. Okay. Except for that one guy. Except that one for time. that one guy that one time, maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Well, um. Do, do you think he's in prison now and he's got tears tattooed? It wouldn't be tears. It would have to be like little like, like circuit boards. Circuit board. I was thinking like binary, but it would be hard to count how many people you've <laughs> killed. <just then. laughs> you get like barcodes. There we Ooh. go. Yeah. Or uh, um, maybe it could be teardrops because it would be rain from the freaking clouds. <laughs> Finally, you guys were like, oh, it took you a while. I did. I was actually just trying to drive us as far away from the cloud metaphor as possible, but it, you led us right back here. So it all comes full circle with Sean. <laughs> no, but it's uh, it's probably time to talk about advice and and things for uh, new analysts or people who are looking to get into the industry. Is all right. Let's let's look forward about getting some more people, more people in this space. Yeah, and I I'm relatively new to the industry, and I know you are as well. But I still think that even with a few years of experience, um, especially as a new analyst yourself, what advice would you give to people who are just now coming into the industry for the first few years of their life, if you will, as a security analyst? I think kind of going back to something we discussed before is just accepting that you have a really steep learning curve ahead of you. Even if you've been doing computers and hacking and whatever since you were 10 years old, there's going to be something that you have to learn. And whether that's the corporate culture of the company you're working in, whether that's the particular product or service you're delivering and how to interact with your clients, whether that's um, actually getting up to speed on certain technical things that you don't really have as strong of a background in, um, there is something that you are going to have to learn. And also, especially for really new people coming straight out of school, one of the things that doesn't always occur and never occurred to me what you did in school and what you learned in school does not actually translate one-to-one -to, -one to the work context. Uh, they are usually teaching you the theory, the background, and how to do it in a perfect lab setup. Um, and you are not going to have that. And if you do in front of you, you are really lucky. And so go you. Um, but learning how to take what you have learned but be humble about that and realize there is a lot more that you can continue learning. And even when you're four or five years in, even when you're 10 years in, there's something that you're actually still going to have to be learning. And just to always kind of keep that passion alive for learning and also uh, the kind of a certain level of humility, um, especially when dealing with people who are more expert in the field, like beware they probably do know what they're talking about if they've been doing this five to ten years more than you have or if they have a different background and a different perspective that they're bringing in, you know, even if they're less experienced, if they have come at the same problem from a different direction, they're probably going to bring something to the table that you weren't thinking of. And so just always being open to what you can learn from 
everyone around you and each experience you're going through. Really interesting. Um, and speaking of being able to learn from everyone around you, there's a lot of really successful people in this industry who um, either have been around a long time or just are kind of the 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 shining stars, the people that always are having good advice and saying the right thing and seem to know everything about the industry. So um, who would you say maybe is your info security hero or just someone you really look up to in the industry? So I think uh, one of the things that I would actually say is, first off, is all of my colleagues at work, like, they're just awesome. And I have been extreme like you can't name all of them and name they're not name drops you know they're not people's name that anyone's going to know but just anyone who is just really anytime you have a question is going to stop what they're doing and answer your question they might not have a blog they might not have a website but to me those people are more valuable than you know 10 or 15 star stars on the internet who you know might know everything but I think as, as someone who kind of works in the government space and um, is always looking for free and yet useful tools, uh, you know, one of the people who I'm ex at least extremely thankful for is Eric Zimmerman and the number of free forensic tools that he's kind of put out there uh, for anyone to use and the amount of work that he's done in the forensics community. That's awesome. O open source um, tools are, in my opinion, like, the way the industry should be. It should not be all cloak and dagger and closed doors. So it's a really good person there who's willing to put out tools like that. So yes, I love open source too. But unfortunately, our time here is coming to a close. Uh, Liz, Emily, you two are awesome. You two are my heroes. Oh, thanks, Sean. Th thank you for, for doing this podcast. Uh, it was super awesome to have the time to have this discussion. Really, really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Yes, Liz, you can come back anytime. For to sure. Do a podcast with us all the time. As soon as I figure out how to move to Seattle and still make a paycheck, I will do that. Thank you so much. Until um, next time. Bye. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at blog.domaintools.com. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.